but also that did take away a lot of who we were as a people, a lot of pride too. And you could not speak the language. You could not, you could not practice your ceremonies, you know, as indigenous people. And so what we're doing now is we're, we're saying, we're going to take that back. We're, we're going to do this work. We're going to teach the children, um, reteach them who they are and where they come from. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This will be year number 18 in the classroom for me. But not yet, because it's summer, summer break. Shout out to everybody who's listening who might be a classroom teacher. Hopefully you're getting a wonderful, restful summer break and taking some time away and just like getting whatever kind of self-care in that you need. And to those of you um, who are, are big bucks, big dollar earner administrators who don't really get a summer break, shout out to you too. What up, Jeff? How you doing? <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I'm doing all right. Uh, doing all right. As you can see from, uh, you know, the uh, the studio setup here, um, I am on the road, not actually in the studio at the moment. So come coming to you live yeah. from uh, my my wonderful uh, hometown, my home city. So St. Paul in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, where I have been enjoying uh, some some vacation, man, some good time off uh, time to Reconnect with uh, with good friends and spend time with family. Um, hang out with my little little nephew who's uh, about six months old now. Um, so Aww. yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good time. But also, man, well, I would be remiss if I did not say you saying this is year number eighteen uh, in the classroom does uh, <laughs> does mark an important milestone, I think, because that means. That the seniors that you have this year, Manuel, were born <laughs> the year you started teaching, the year we started teaching. And, uh, you know, I just feel like we should comment on that. Uh, I don't know exactly what it means other than we, uh, we're getting old and dusty, uh, Man. I guess. But, um, you know. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Doing a lot of self-reflection, Jeff. Um, it is definitely one of those, like, just... Man, where did the time go? We got, I was in a Zoom yesterday with a bunch of other teachers and they're, you know, we're each going around introducing ourselves and all that. And it was like third year in the classroom, fourth year. And one of them was like, oh, I've been teaching forever. This is my seventh year, this is that, whatever. And I just stayed quiet. I just felt so yeah. old. And, you know, uh -huh. honestly, Jeff, honestly, Jeff, I know we talk about, you know, racism and, and classism and patriarchy and these things a lot on this show, but we don't talk enough about ageism, Jeff, because I, mm. I, I feel like the, us old heads, <laughs> us old heads, you know what I'm saying? We are um, becoming more and more of a rarity in the classroom. And, well, we just got to talk about it, man. Mm. Maybe mm. not today, though. Maybe not today, but uh, I will say it is it's it is both. I feel like we're at an interesting juncture in our career because we're at the point where there's like a lot of people who are much younger than us. And there's a lot of people who are who are like 18. Like, man, that was back in my youth. Like, that I'm, is true. you know, I'm on Very 27 true. this year, you know. And um, and so we're at that. You know, I guess we are maybe officially like middle aged. I guess is that what that means? I think you're right. 
time time for the face tattoo and a, a red sports car and Man. <laughs> you know high yes. risk behavior yes. uh, <laughs> pull up in a yeah. nice little Corvette except I'm on public school teacher salary so I probably couldn't do that but I got to find some equivalent yeah, you know, of a get, midlife get crisis you like a red, vehicle a red, for a teacher a red civic hybrid or something oh you know? ooh, ooh, there we go <laughs> yeah oh man anyways Jeff it's summer I'm not trying to think about how old I've gotten in the classroom and how time is passing. <laughs> I would like to learn something new this episode because no matter how long you've been in the classroom, there's always new things to learn and new, new ways to grow. So Jeff, what's on the agenda today? What are we going to be learning about and discussing? Well, man, well, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And uh, today's episode is a fascinating one because we are taking on uh, a subject in today's seminar that is one, frankly, that uh, we have not addressed, uh, certainly in the in-depth and, and with the level of detail we're going to be digging into today, um, which is questions around how our nation's public schools can, should, you know, do and do not serve the needs of our indigenous youth. And we have um, just an incredible guest uh, who's going to be joining us, Valeria Big Eagle, Dr. Valeria Big Eagle, I should say, yeah. new, newly credentialed, um, is going to be joining us uh, from Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, she, uh, in addition to, uh, to just recently earning her doctorate, also serves as the Diversity Outreach and Engagement Director at South Dakota State University um, and their College of Nursing. Um, she also happens to be the president of the Indian Education Parent Advisory Committee for Rapid City Area Schools, where she and the committee she is, she is leading is helping to really push some exciting work in Rapid City's uh, public school system. Now, a lot of folks might not be familiar with Rapid City, South Dakota. It's uh, one of the biggest cities in South Dakota, um, certainly a smaller city on the on the national scale, um, but in western South Dakota, and also happens to be a district that serves about 30% um, indigenous youth, right? So, um, a, you know, a really interesting kind of case study nationally and how public school systems can be pushed to do things like, you know, creating a Lakota a dual language immersion program, right? Um, and seeking to close and eliminate the kinds of equity gaps that we see all across the country with, you know, uh, black and Latinx students and low income students, et cetera. Um, but we're going to dive in with Valeria about how she and her community there is taking on addressing these challenges in the Rapid City school system. So going to be a fascinating conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Dr. Big Eagle in the building, Rapid City in the building. Can't wait. But up first, folks, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Oh, Manuel, today is your favorite time, uh, your favorite way, I should say, of doing the Do Now. Um, it involves a report cards, giving out grades, and as we know, you like to give uh, all those D's and F's, Manuel, if uh, memory serves. So All about those D's and F's, man. That's right. Cap Do better. Captain High D expectations. Captain D and F over there. 
<laughs> All that, yes. How else will they be prepared for life if they don't get an adequate number of Ds and Fs? You Indeed, know? life likes yes. to beat people down. So we got to prepare them for those beatdowns by serving beatdowns. Boom, Ds and Fs. Let's do exactly. it. All right, Jeff. First grade for today's Do Now is, um, it's actually a C. Mm. Okay, you know, middle of the road, college try. Uh, you know, eligible for CSU and UC admission, but not really, I guess. Uh, <laughs> big facts there, big facts yeah. there. Yes, indeed. Actually, this C, Jeff, stands for um, critical race theory. Mm, critical race theory. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it, you mean the, um, the liberal leftist plot to destroy the minds of white youth all across America, Manuel? That critical race theory? That's the one. That's the one. And, you know, okay. Jeff, honestly, I, I'm almost at the point where I'm tired of talking about it, but it's a developing story and things continue to accelerate in this culture war. The C could have also stood for culture war or it could have also served for, or stood for like conservative, whatever, lunacy. But um, <laughs> we can't just ignore it. We got to, you know, we've been talking, we've been talking about it since before it became a really big national discussion point because like we saw pieces of this start to develop back in back in the fall but now it's just it's like it's really the main story of the summer and here we have a story about teachers unions finally i guess you could say taking some kind of stand around it maybe kind of so we're gonna go ahead and get into it and see what the latest is in the crt battles all right so this story comes from some reporting by linda jacobson for the 74 as well as madeline will for ed week and essentially the latest right-wing culture war continues to rage as we just said and um, as it does the nation's largest teachers union appears to have recently entered the fray according to agenda items that the national education association recently passed at its annual meeting which no longer appear to be on the union's website so we'll talk about that uh, but delegates at the union's annual meeting approved a statement calling for a campaign to implement critical race theory in curriculum and to oppose efforts to ban it. The approved statement reads that the union will support and lead a campaign that results in, quote, increasing the implementation of culturally responsive education, critical race theory, and ethnic studies curriculum in pre-K through 12 and higher education. Now, NEA delegates also adopted a $56,000 measure to, quote, research the organizations attacking educators doing anti-racist work so that members could be uh, prepared to respond to these attacks. Now, the union's move comes as nine states have already officially formally banned teaching that references structural racism, equity, white supremacy, and other concepts that conservatives have linked to critical race theory. But more than 20 other states are considering similar bills. The leader of the nation's other major teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers Presidents, Randy Weingarten, Randy Weingarten, said critical race theory is not explicitly taught in schools, but she pledged to defend any teachers who address topics that these laws seek to ban from classroom conversations. She recently said, quote, mark my words, our union will defend any member who gets in trouble for teaching honest history. We have a legal defense fund ready to go. And she added that culture warriors want to deprive students of a robust understanding of our common history. Now, it's unclear whether either union is encouraging members in states that have 
already passed anti-critical race theory legislation to violate the law. But at the very least, the adopted NEA statement certainly is urging or certainly is arguing that teachers shouldn't gloss over unpleasant aspects of American history. Now, news of this union's statement being passed at its meeting no longer appears to be on the union's website, although it has been archived and you could see that um, those links below this video. So I'm not quite sure, Jeff, why these agenda items and, and the, this vote has disappeared from the website. I know conservatives are in a fury, at least at the time of this recording. Now, by the time folks listen or view this video, maybe this has already been sorted out, but I know conservative media is like, oh, they're trying to cover it up, they're erasing it, they're erasing it, this and that, whatever. But whatever, it's not on the website anymore, but it happened. And what are your thoughts here on union delegates basically standing up for critical race theory specifically, but also the broader categories of, or the broader ideas of culturally responsive teaching and ethnic studies and the other items mentioned in the statement? Yeah, so I would say, man, well, I have uh, kind of two <laughs> opposite reactions, perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. to this piece. On the one hand, uh, what I initially understood to have taken place, I was like, word, I'm so happy that the nation's two largest teacher unions are taking a hard stand, or at least, you know, from this reporting, it seems like the NEA was planning to take a hard stand. The AFT, uh, you know, hearing Randy Weingarten's comments was taken, frankly, a weaker stand, I thought. But um, the idea that they are preparing a legal defense fund, saying they're going to go to bat for teachers who are teaching you know, honest history about America is so critical and important because make no mistake about it, we're now up to, last I heard uh, earlier this week, was 23 states in the union that have passed laws um, limiting or outlawing you know, the teaching of truthful history in this country. And, you know, this is a very serious, uh, both like professional, ethical and like social problem um, that we are grappling with right now. That is definitely like a white supremacist war on honesty and democracy. And so we cannot stand for this. Like the fact of the matter is we can't. And uh, I am I was super excited that our largest professional organizations were agreeing and saying, oh, hell no, we cannot stand for this. We are going to fight back. So that I felt really excited about. On the other hand, what we saw and, and you know heard reported here in terms of Randy Weingarten and the AFT stance being like a little more you know middle of the road, like, well, critical race theory isn't being taught, but we're going to stand up for teachers. To me, misses the mark. Um, I think what, what excited me most about this news, and hopefully this is what manifests, is the idea of going on the offensive. Like we should go out and intentionally find test cases to challenge these laws. They are absolutely uh, you know, unethical in terms of educational practice. They're absolutely harmful to society and to young people. And they are absolutely uh, looking to do like intellectual mental health warfare against people of color for sure, um, which is not to diminish the harmful effects that this kind of white supremacist mythology has on white youth, 
But most certainly, we know plenty about the benefits of this kind of teaching on identity development and formation for, for young people of color. And this is an outright war on that. Um, and also, there's a, a, certainly a very, very good argument to be made and robust argument to be made that this is unconstitutional restriction uh, of, of truthful speech, right? Um, in the exact place, school, where, where this kind of speech actually belongs, right? Um, and so we need to go on the offensive, in my view. The reality is talking about, well, we're not teaching critical race theory to third graders is a losing battle because the takeaway from that is critical race theory is bad and that's why we don't teach it to third graders. The reality is critical race theory is a really good theory <laughs> that offers really important insight that radically advanced our nation's understanding of how structural and systemic racism plays out and not just individual racist acts from racist people. Um, and yes, of course, critical race theory came out of legal scholarship, but the, the uh, descendants of critical race theory, right, that can be, uh, you know, seen in other disciplines in history, in math and science and other places and ethnic studies um, as a subject area in, you know, in education is, is robust, right? Like we're doing the same kind of critical analysis, just applying it to something other than the law. And the reality is third graders can do a third grade version of that and they should and it's a good thing and that's what responsible anti-racist education looks like and if they don't like that they're welcome to stick their white supremacist flag in the ground and fight for that position but we are going to put our anti-racist justice flag in the ground and fight for our position. We're not going to cede ground to these folks and shift the entire discourse to the far right. So I, you know, I think I'm a minority voice on this, Manuel. We talked about this a little bit, you know, over, over recent months, but um, I hope that what comes of this is an offensive strategy to attack these attacks against critical race theory and against the righteous justice-oriented teaching of American history. We'll see where it plays out, though. Yeah, well, one thing about conservative talking points is that they always become the narrative that everybody else responds to. And that's something that conservatives have been very, very good at sort of defining the, the story and then everybody else just reacting to it. So, you know, I think back to the migrant caravan of what was that, 2018 and how the migrant caravan was, you know, crashing towards the United States and this and that and so much coverage about that which was just, you know, fear-mongering, like this critical race theory stuff is is more fear-mongering. It's, that's, you know, sort of the story from the right that we get over time. Um, as far as the particulars of this story, though, as a classroom teacher, I am very much in support of the union taking a very clear stand in support of its teachers and a very clear offensive strategy against these organizations and against these folks who are coming after teachers. I think this is, and I think most, I think you and I both agree and, and most folks would agree that this is so much bigger than just critical race theory. So I agree with you that yes, we have to defend the actual framework that is critical race theory and not let it become this, this toxic idea because it's not, it's a great tool. However, this is so much bigger than that. And you know, critical race theory has been conflated with all sorts of stuff at this point. And at the end of the day, it just seems like we are reaching or we have entered another era where public school teachers are being viewed as enemies of the state, are being viewed as disloyal, as being viewed as threatening towards kids. And this whole culture war around CRT to me is really about 
the, the, the state of the American public school system, how we view teachers, how we support teachers. And in this case, teachers are under attack, period. They are under attack. And I think back to last summer, uh, summer of 2020, that is, and when different districts were passing those Black Lives Matter resolutions in support of Black Lives Matter. And I remember some headlines where teachers were showing up in their Zoom classrooms with either Black Lives Matter in the background or a shirt that referenced something related to Black Lives Matter. And parents were up in arms and, you know, conservative podcasts and YouTubers were coming after them. And I remember, I think it was on the show, I don't know, but, you know, we were mentioning how, like, yo, districts got to stand up for these teachers, man. Because if you're a district and you have this resolution and this teacher in your district is being attacked by parents online on Facebook groups and all that stuff because of this Black Lives Matter in their background, like, you got to stand up for that teacher. You got to show them that they're not out there alone. And I think this is that sort of idea, but on a larger scale scale now, because the backlash to last summer is in full effect, full effect. And as a classroom teacher, yes, I'm in California. Of course, California is not passing one of these laws. And I don't have to worry about the state trying to shut down the stuff we're doing uh, around anti-racism at our school or in our district or whatever. But still, there are certainly going to be parents showing up to, to uh, school board meetings, if not my district and other districts. And certainly there's going to be folks trying to catch teachers like myself and like every other classroom teacher out there with assignments that they think are divisive or assignments that they think are quote unquote anti-white. And I need to know, I need to know that the district and the union has our back. Like if my name pops up in conservative media and they're coming after me, I personally do not have the resource to like defend myself. I don't know what to do in that case if I'm getting like, you know, piles of hate mail and threats and all that stuff. Like what do I do? Who do I turn to? So I need these unions to be very vocal about their legal defense fund, their research on organizations that are aiming for teachers like there's some you know right-wing publication that posted the the names of all the teachers who signed up for the um who signed their name to the teach the truth pledge for through the zen education project like there are groups out there that are trying to put teachers on blast teachers who are doing the right thing the right thing by teaching honest history and having students critically deal with just the facts of what happened in the past and how they affect the present i need to know that the unions aren't just like kind of like wavering and in 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 like kind of backtracking on this stuff i need to know that they are ready to be out there in front and i need them to be out there in front for my own sake and i'm saying that as a teacher in california i couldn't imagine what a teacher in iowa is thinking or you know approaching the school year and knowing that like parents are going to come after them if they touch any of this stuff like these unions i need to know they fully have our back loud proud and like let's make it happen man because teachers yeah. are such a great resource and they are heavily under attack right now yeah uh yes completely man and i i will say man well you know i understand we live in california and people think it's a liberal bubble and all this what's happening right now in california they're recalling gavin newsom yep. governor gavin newsom you know this is coming from the like the far right trumpist oh yeah set of folks right so they could be successful with that. The last time this happened in California, what happened? We got Arnold Schwarzenegger as, as governor. The Terminator. So, yes. yes, the governor. So it can happen, all right? Um, and honestly, I wouldn't be that surprised uh, if it did in this historical moment. And who knows if, if that if, you know, were to take place what the next steps could be in terms of like, oh, this is a mandate to get rid of critical race theory in schools. Sir. And 
all this kind of insanity, right? So I, I love the the offensive stance. We cannot sit back and be reactionary and, and reactive to what is happening here. We like this is the time where we need proactive lawsuits left and right, man. I'm talking public counsel, ACLU, MALDEF, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. All the, you know, um, the ADL. All, all the like, acronyms. I'm, all of them. All the acronyms need to show up right now and start going after um, this just like, like this is this is Nazi-like behavior from these folks. Like no hyperbole at all. And right? it's really, the, yeah, you're, you're right about no hyperbole. Not to, not to interrupt, but I just want to shout out uh, Timothy Snyder had an excellent piece in the New York Times. I think we'll link it, link it below about memory laws and the history of memory laws um, through the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany and just the impact that those authoritarian governments had in shaping how people yeah. remembered the past. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Excellent read for anybody who uh, wants to dive into the historical connections here. Anyways, didn't mean to yeah. cut you off. No, all good, man. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. And so, I, you know, long story short, we need an offensive approach uh, from my perspective. Districts are gonna be limited in this because the reality is districts are bound to uphold state law, even if they right. don't like state law, right? But districts could be party to lawsuits against the state. It's happened before. Why shouldn't it happen now? Like, I would love to see LAUSD, Oakland Unified, San Francisco Unified, you know. I mean, there's not a law in California to sue about yet. But I would love to see that in some of these states where these laws have been passed, you know, as districts uh, filing lawsuit against the state and saying, like, this is going to do harm to our students. It's arbitrary and capricious, you know, censorship. It's all the stuff. <laughs> and and we got to go after these people, man. This is crazy, crazy stuff that is going to be harmful to young people and communities. So we'll see how it goes. But I do appreciate NEA and AFT for, um, you know, step stepping up to bat yep. at least. No, you're right, man. You're right. Um, I would like a positive story, though, Jeff. That just took me to a place. I'm just angry. I'm just getting so angry about mm. that stuff because it's so just out of nowhere and it's so just wrong so something mm -hmm. uplifting jeff what's our next grade <laughs> uh see man well you always try to set me up like this when the reality is we we keep it real here we keep it critical here on all the above so you know we take we take joy in the struggle for justice man well that's that's where our happiness comes from here uh the next grade man well is a d uh oh. which you know i know as we said earlier is one of your two favorite grades along with f uh, to give out. So um, would you like to just share a positive reflection about your satisfaction for giving another D, Manuel? Man, I got nothing, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I, whatever. Uh, a D is passing. I guess you don't have to retake the class. Whatever. Grades are <laughs> oppressive remnants uh, of very colonial structures. But anyways. Oh, man. What well, we got, man? What we got? With all that talk. Uh, we got a D, <laughs> you know, one might think of it in this <laughs> this case as a D for doomsday. Uh, uh, that sounds or, very or not positive. <laughs> or is it? Okay. Now, this article certainly sounded like everything is wrong. All the children are dying and nothing. There was no learning that happened at all since March of 2020. And all the kids are going to be poor and, and homeless forever in their lives. Lives. Man. Uh, <laughs> um, but let's, you know, let's take a little bit of an honest dive into this. So 
Um, this story is by Liz uh, Sabo, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, um, who reports for Kaiser Health News, but this article was actually published in USA Today uh, at the very end of June. And uh, it goes into all kinds of uh, alarmist um, uh, ideas, thoughts, data about what has happened as a result of the pandemic um, in the nation's school-age children. So, after more than a year of isolation, widespread financial insecurity, and the loss of an unprecedented amount of classroom time, experts say many of the youngest Americans have fallen behind socially, academically, and emotionally in ways that could harm their physical and mental health for years or even decades to come. Uh, quote, this could affect a whole generation for the rest of their lives, said Dr. Um, Jack Shankoff, a pediatrician and director at the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard University. Many kids will go back to school this fall without having mastered the previous year's curriculum. Some kids have disappeared from the school altogether, and educators worry more students will drop out. Between school closures and reduced instructional time, the average U.S. child has lost the equivalent of five to nine months of learning during the pandemic, according to a report from McKinsey and Company. The report notes that Black and Hispanic students whose parents are more likely to have lost jobs and whose schools were less likely to reopen for in-person instruction have missed an even greater amount of six to 12 months of learning. Experts worry that the negative effects of the pandemic and virtual schooling are already being seen, with the proportion of emergency room visits related to mental health among kids ages 12 to 17 increasing from 31, increasing 31% 31 from 2019 to 2020, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, this same kind of pattern has been seen in other mental health indicators um, where uh, teens are making more suicide attempts. Um, ERs are treating 50% more adolescent girls and 4% more adolescent boys for suspected suicide attempts in February and March of 2021 than in those months the year before. So, Manuel... This is uh, certainly an interesting article. There is a whole host of data points, pediatricians, experts saying, oh my God, the learning loss, this is gonna harm kids not only right now, but for the rest of their lives, they're never gonna earn as much as they would earn, they're going to be more you know, mentally ill, less competitive in college, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's interesting data and yet also a uh, real ramping up perhaps of some of the rhetoric around learning loss. So I'm very curious what say you as someone who has spent, you know, a tremendous amount of time over the last year with America's youth, even if through blank Zoom screens. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you said this was from Kaiser Health News originally, which makes me sad. Kaiser, you know, that's our health coverage is through Kaiser. And I didn't think Kaiser would be beating the drum of, of learning loss. And this is a, whoo, this is a doozy here, this piece. Uh, this is, so I, I would file it under uh, trash or garbage or <laughs> refuse or waste or rubbish or any other synonym you can think of. Because although, you know, it is true that in general, many students, perhaps did not learn certain skills to the extent that they would have if they had a normal 
non-pandemic school year. I mean, it is what it is, man. It was a global pandemic and it's impacting everybody. And the focus should be on healing, not on, oh, this is going to impact them for the rest of their lives. Like, oh, oh, so what are we supposed to do? Like what? Like just we got to address the harm that was done first and foremost create some healing, create some structures and some some spaces in schools to help students transition back to the classroom and all that. But man, miss me with the how bad this was cuz like it it happened, man. We're talking about a global catastrophe that by recent counts cost 4 million people their lives. Like we're talking like global catastrophe. And sitting back and talking about how this is going to impact the generation for the whole rest of their lives, to me, is not helpful. To me, that's that's trash. And I think, for one, it overstates how much students lost. And we talked about this, you know, on this show plenty of times this year, how like, you know, there's so many other things that students were able to learn or, or ways that they were able to develop during this time that just aren't measurable. I think, you know, Leo Glaze on the recent, the, the Takeaways episode a few episodes back, talked about how like there's all these other things that aren't measurable that students were able to grow and progress in. Like their, you know, online collaboration with other students. Like that's a workplace skill not that we're in the business of like just, you know, workplace skills, prepare students just for the workplace, but like that is a real workplace skill, you know, co collaborating with others online and they developed in that way. And that's not going to be measured like in any kind of standardized way. So like this overstates, I think the fact that, you know, there are certain things that students didn't learn, but there are other things that they did learn that aren't, you know, don't seem to be covered in this article. So there's that. And just in general, like, I don't, I don't think the focus on how much, how bad this is, I don't think that's, I just don't think that's helpful. Like there have been other cases in history where learning was upset through natural disaster. We could talk about, you know, the impact of Hurricane Katrina on on youngsters throughout throughout uh, Louisiana and in, in the region. We could talk about wars. We could talk about genocides around the world. Like there have been, unfortunately, too many cases of education being interrupted for people. And by my understanding, and I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is in general, over time, like things balance out and folks catch up. But just that aside, like this is a global thing. If students generally did not learn as much as they would have in a regular school year, it's not like it's just at one school. We're talking about globally. And yes, of course, certain groups of students, particularly low-income students, particularly folks who have already been marginalized, will feel the impact bigger in, or in a better way. But like that would have happened in school. Like everybody could have had a perfectly in-person school year, and those same groups would have, you know, quote unquote, fallen behind from others because of the inequities in the system. So I'm not here for the doom and gloom, man. I don't need that in my life right now, Jeff. No doom and gloom. We will be okay yeah. if we bring everybody back together in a loving, healing, humanizing way, period. Yep. Yes, uh, you are correct. I am in agreement with that. And here's, here's my, well, you know, this article, in fairness, to to the author and to you know the folks at Kaiser and USA Today, the, you know the article is like it's got a lot of clickbait in it, right? It's got links to really damning studies and and data that's like oh my god, the sky is falling, right? right? 
And I get it, you know, everybody's looking to get clicks, right? And everybody's looking to draw attention to their piece. And, and, and I don't just say that in a dismissive way to them. Also, there is lots of really alarming data about equity gaps that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And we should be talking about those things. The problem I have, Manuel, is that this piece, like almost every piece I've ever seen that, that trumpets the learning loss, that, that goes down the path of weaponizing learning loss, is doing so with absolutely none of the <laughs> of the critical analysis, uh, speaking of our last story, um, of the critical analysis about, huh, why do we have a situation where when there's a pandemic which provided you, you know, you didn't get sick, in terms of school, basically meant you stayed home with a loving adult for a year. Like, Thank why you. do we why do we have a situation where kids staying home for a, with a loving adult for a year is going to result in massive exacerbation of of equity gaps in education? Right? Why do we have a situation in this country where so many young people are living so on the brink in so many aspects of their lives that when a pandemic hits, their family is faced with destitution or something close to it due to unemployment, due to housing insecurity, due to lack of healthcare, due to all the stuff that we know is happening in this country. And then we wanna have the conversation about these, these questions or frankly skip over the conversation about these questions, but look at the effects of it only through the lens of school, which I feel like inevitably will go down the road of the most horrible version of school that we could possibly conceive of as the remedy, right? Let's have eight hours a day of reading and math and test prep and nothing else. Let's cancel recess for a year because learning loss, right? Like this kind of stuff is unhelpful to the discussion, right? It's not the data that this article is citing that I'm arguing with as being wrong or particularly controversial. It's the framing of the data as like, what is this actually evidence of? And then the response to it, which is we don't need to think about how do we cram as much traditional school into our kids next year so that we can recover all the traditional school they lost last year. That's not the idea here. That's not what we need. We need humanizing, as you said, humanizing approaches to education, not only on the social emotional level, but just on the, the like content learning level, right? Like what engages people back in school since we've come out of a period of disengagement? Fun, you know, excitement, things that are high interest, things that are personally relevant and motivating to them. That's what we should what we should start with in terms of learning from my vantage point, at least. And I worry that this kind of article is uh, is framing the issue in the wrong way and and actually pushing us towards a harmful response to this data rather than towards the humanizing, uh, loving type of response that would create schools that I think could actually address a lot of the learning that may have been lost in the last year in terms of formalized school learning um, and actually help that feel good to kids and families along the way. So, um, you know, this is, I, I felt like, I don't know if you felt this, Manuel, that, that maybe there had been like a little bit of a calm around some of the learning loss rhetoric there, like right towards the end of the school year. But like this kind of article, reminds me that like, oh no, it's not, it's not over. The learning loss hawks are coming. Man. Uh, they might just be on summer break too. Man, Kaiser, man, dang, who would have thought, who would have thought? And it occurs to me, Jeff, that conversations like this one, 
there's a lot of like looking at the past with like rose tinted glasses. Cause like this assumes, and a lot of the learning loss folks kind of assume that like school was so great before the pandemic and, and all oh, it was, you know, we got to get back to that because we're behind now. It's like, well, it wasn't so great. There are already so many problems as you laid out. And we see that also with discussions around changing literally anything, like changing math curriculum. Folks, oh, you're, it's like, as if math teaching has been so great through our past and as if we're, you know, scoring highest in the world in math or whatever, like, like a lot of folks, no matter what the discussion is around, whenever there's a, a change, either because we need a positive change or because something interrupted what was existing, there's a lot of like, acting like what was already there was so great. And in this case, like what was already there was so great. And now they've missed that for a whole year and doom and gloom and everybody's lost. And it's just, uh, uh, I'm just, I'm tired of it, man. I'm tired of it. Jeff, I need some healing, man. I need a guest on this show today who could help us process and learn something new in a way that is both warm and welcoming and humanizing. So Jeff, I think for our seminar, we're gonna bring somebody on who is new to our show, Dr. Big Eagle, who is just a wonderful, wonderful educator and will help us get out of this muck of critical race theory and doom and gloom learning loss and explore something that we haven't talked about or spoken about on the show enough, which is our, our service for indigenous youth in our school system. All right, folks, so stay tuned for that seminar coming up next. What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for watching All the Above. We really appreciate you, and it has been such a fantastic year for the show. All the support we've received has been incredible. There's two things you can do if you wanna support all the above right now. The first one is easy. All you gotta do is like and subscribe this episode. Give us that five-star rating. Every little click that you give helps us spread the word about all the above. The second thing is share it with someone who might like the show as well. So colleagues at work, family members, friends, neighbors, anybody who cares about this beautiful thing we call school and education, uh, pass the word on to them. Thanks so much, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us. And we have an incredible guest here with us today. She is Dr. Valeria Big Eagle, coming to us all the way from Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, where it is a beautiful, sunny summer day today. And uh, we are just thrilled to have her here with us. We're gonna be exploring some really important issues and questions around how America's public school systems serve indigenous youth. So welcome, uh, Dr. Big Eagle, to all the above. Hello, all. It's really honored to be here. All right, well, let us tell you a little bit more about Dr. Big Eagle. Um, she believes that an equitable education can be healing. Among the first Yankton Sioux women to earn her doctoral degree, Dr. Big Eagle wants to inspire and empower fellow Native Americans to seek higher education as a means to heal themselves and their communities. She serves as the Diversity Outreach and Engagement Director at South Dakota State University College of Nursing in the Native American Nursing Education Center. 
as the president also of the Indian Education Parent Advisory Committee of Rapid City Area Schools. She understands that inequitable challenges that Native students face in education systems due to the lack of cultural understanding, especially if they are in settings with little support for their cultural identity. Valeria lives and works in Rapid City, South Dakota. Welcome again, Dr. Big Eagle, and I'm going to hand it over to uh, Manuel for our first question. Yeah, Dr. Big Eagle in the building. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here on all of the above. We are very honored to have you here and very much looking forward to hearing about your perspectives um, on education. And, and when people talk about racial equity in our school system and in education, too often the, the needs and experiences of indigenous, indigenous youth are, are not included in those conversations. And the school system that, that um, you work close with is Rapid City, South Dakota, um, where 20% of the student body, roughly 20% of the student body are indigenous youth and they make up the, the largest group of students of color. So we're wondering if we could start there, if you could perhaps uh, share with us some context about schooling in Rapid City and what the experiences of uh, young native youth are in Rapid City schools. So in Rapid City area schools, there's around 20%, almost 30% actually of indigenous students including those students that are multicultural, maybe one or more race, but also identify as American Indian. And on any given day in Rapid City, we can have around 25% of the actual city itself be indigenous um, because we have indigenous relatives coming from nearby reservations such as Oglala, Cheyenne River, Rosebud. And so we do have several um, indigenous peoples that are actually here in Rapid City. And for our students in the school district, there has been a huge, I mean, academic disparities among students in every subject matter you can think of. Looking at the state report card that comes out, it's around 25 to 30% lower than the other student groups. And we know this as educators, that it ties back to that cultural genocide that has happened to indigenous people. Um, really not knowing students, not knowing who they are and where they come from, and so really struggling in these systems that were not made for them. And so we have a lot of students that, you know, they say they tell us their stories of how they go into school and they get made of made fun of because of their hair, and even by teachers because there's no understanding there, and that really hurts us because this is the 21st century. We need to start learning more about the history and the culture of the Indigenous people so that we know how to support students, Indigenous students. And so that's just one example. I, I remember um, hearing this story, and this is from a close friend of mine, and she told, you know, she's been telling this story about her son. Her son's hair was pulled by a teacher, you know, and just that lack of understanding in itself, how important is, you know, the importance of our hair, it's very important to who we are as people. Um, there's stories there, and we do not cut our hair for no reason. We do not let others touch our hair. And so for that teacher to do that, that was so disrespectful. But at the same time, that teacher was not reprimanded for their actions. And so, and that was near just a few years ago. And so that's just an example of what our students face here in the school district. I know that we recently did a survey 
for students wanting to know more about how we can support them. So starting to ask some really critical questions and students felt like they weren't heard when they felt that they were being bullied because they're indigenous or that's what they were saying. And when they spoke up um, saying, I, I think I'm being treated differently or my classmate, because we see this white student here, they're doing the same thing, but they're not being punished as greatly as we are as indigenous students. And instead of the teacher acknowledging that, they were gaslighting. They were gaslighting these students. And so saying, oh, you're, you're overreacting. And too often we hear that, especially as you know, minorities and people of color of being gaslighted and said, say, said to us that um, what we are feeling is not valid, that we are overreacting. And no, we are not. This, that it's time to change. And that's part of what we're doing here right now in Rapid City Area Schools and that I'm really honored to be a part of. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to listen to what you uh, were sharing there, Dr. Big Eagle, because, you know, wh where it first makes my mind go is to the parallels uh, between the type of experience in public school that you just named for Indigenous youth in Rapid City and the kind of, um, you know, inequities in public education that we grapple with here in, you know, in Los Angeles with, um, you know, African-American students, with Latinx students, um, and, you know, the same themes, right, of, um, you know, lack of representation among, uh, you know, in the curriculum of, you know, a pedagogy that is uh, at conflict with some of the cultural values and norms of the community um, and those sorts of things. And, and, you know, I think when, when people think about what educational inequity looks like and what some of the, you know, challenges are, we often think of like, you know, the, the big cities, New York, LA, Chicago, and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, the story you're telling of what's happening at Rapid City feels familiar, even, <laughs> even though I've spent no time in schools in Rapid City. Um, so it's just just really interesting to to hear what you had to say there. And you mentioned briefly the um, the long documented history um, in this country of problems uh, in education, particularly when it comes to indigenous youth and the use even of schools as an outright weapon against um, the community has, you know, a, a long and, and painful history. Um, I'm also wondering if you could share with us a little bit, um, you know, about how you in the face of that history are doing and helping to lead work with um, a task force in the Rapid City school system to help hold the Rapid City area schools accountable for implementing a culturally responsive uh, pedagogy and curriculum and pushing for, uh, you know, the kind of education that Indigenous students need and, and deserve. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that work. So, you know, this Indigenous Education Task Force, this first started um, last year, actually, wanting to, wanting to create a task force that we can start examining some of these things, academic disparities. Well, why? Well, as Indigenous people, we know why, but we need to see the data, right? And so, that's why we really created this in our the previous Title VI Indian Education president. She actually would not sign off 
on the Title VI grant, which gives out Indian education funds, until this Indigenous Education Task Force was created. So there's some historical context to that. And so finally, when we, you know, we got this task force, we leveraged it with, okay, there's this long history of, there's a bill, it was Senate Bill 68 here in South Dakota that was proposed for community-based Ocheti Shakoi schools. And the superintendent publicly opposed this ideology and this proposal here from Rapid City Area Schools. And so as the president, I said, she said she could do it. She could make this happen. Um, and so as the president, I, I leveraged that. And I said, okay, well, let's make it happen. So um, that's whenever we started this Lakota immersion pilot, really cultivating and saying, we need to do this. You said we can do this work. Let's do this. And that's just one of the things of the task force is creating a Lakota immersion pilot program at one of the elementary schools in the school district where students are going to be, they can inherently be Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, and, and Indigenous and not have to feel ashamed for it. Um, Lakota will be spoken throughout the whole entirety of their education. Not only that, elders will be able to come and visit, which we know in our way of life, our elders, we give them the most respect and they have earned it. And for them to be able to come in and share that knowledge and wisdom through storytelling to the youth will only... Um, strengthen their cultural identity because part of that has been lost like I mentioned before that stripping of cultural identity and from our ancestors you know I can say for myself even for my family um, you know I have had great great grandparents and grandparents that attended boarding school and they there was trauma that happened in those schools and it did follow you know follow into the family um, but also that did take away a lot of who we were as a people, a lot of pride too. And you could not speak the language. You could not, you could not practice your ceremonies, you know, as indigenous people. And so what we're doing now is we're, we're saying, we're going to take that back. We're, we're going to do this work. We're going to teach the children, um, reteach them who they are and where they come from so that they can be empowered and understand why education is important, but we can make education work for us the way that we teach our people, how we teach. And it's not from the Western education point of view. Of course, we still have to follow state standards, but we can develop curriculum that is particular to the Ocheti Shakoi and to our indigenous ways of knowing and being that will complement our students' growth. And we have done so much research in regards to this too. Um, with Red Cloud Immersion School and their students, where they spoke, it's when it's immersion, full immersion means you speak the language and only the language. And they, so they had their immersion, they were speaking the language, they learned, they you know, wrote math, everything. And what they tested, they tested in English. And what do you think happened? They were the top kindergarten class in the whole state. Highest rep um, report or highest of highest <laughs> that you could get 
on those um, standardized tests for kindergarten students. And these students, their first language was, was Lakota. And so that only tells you this can work. Um, we know how to do the work as Indigenous people. We just need the chance to. And this is a great opportunity, starting with this Lakota Immersion Pilot Program. And other things that we are doing, too, is looking at how can we recruit and retain more Indigenous staff in the school district. And so examining the culture of the school district, which hasn't been very welcoming to Indigenous staff, as we have lost several throughout the years. And so starting to look at those things, and those are hard discussions to have, right? But it's what we need to do because we know that this, this system is not very welcoming. And like I said, it just goes back to, we just need the right leadership in place to be able to do this work. And so we've had had that opportunity with Dr. Lori Simon here and being very open in the school board. And so I'm just glad to be a part of it because the time is now and we're not going to stop. I mean, that's why I went back and got my education, you know, because I knew that this was my calling was to be an advocate for education for Indigenous students, Indigenous youth, our Indigenous communities. And so I'm really, I'm really honored to be a part of this movement. Yeah, I, I love all of that. And it really strikes me that there are a lot of commonalities between some of the challenges that you mentioned and some of the challenges that we see with students in, in big city areas like Los Angeles. You mentioned the, right. the gaslighting from teachers. You mentioned the, you know, the need for educators of color and support for educators of color. And, and it's almost like these challenges are systemic. It's almost like these it challenges, this, this white supremacy culture is throughout the school system and, and obviously impacts different communities in, in particular ways. But I, I, I love all that you said about the work you're doing there and, and wondering if you could tell us maybe a little bit more about some of these um, Ocheti Shikoi essential understandings that we came across when we read the article about your task force there. They mm -hmm. mentioned these essential understandings, and we were really surprised to see that um, coming from South Dakota. So can you tell us a little bit about how those are received in the community out there and, and what they are and, and, and just some context around that? So the Ocheti Shakoi essential understandings, they were developed quite a few years ago by Indigenous educators and tribal leaders across the state, including um, my mentor and Dr. Dorothy Kayukin, who has since made her journey to the spirit world. Um, but those essential understandings, they are ways to, they are lessons teaching about Ocheti Shakoi history and culture and ceremony and working with elders in the community. They were able to adopt these standards. And um, right now in the school district, that was one of the things that we were examining because we know these states, they have been passed by the state over six years ago, but we wanted to know how they are implementing them throughout the school district because that is not mandated, even though they were adopted. And so we know that we, we, heard, we heard this too in the, um, in the surveys that we did with students is that they want more history and culture taught in the classroom and not just that the after-school program that prioritizes Lakota culture and history, but in the schools. And so 
that's when that's part of the task force's job as well as looking at providing recommendations to how we can integrate more Ocheti Shakoi essential understandings throughout the school district. And we even did some analysis on how these are implemented by schools and they're not evenly being implemented. And so they need to be throughout the schools, grade levels. And so I know that we're, we're boosting that up as well, working with Title VI Indian Education and working with the school board and working with our parent advisory committee, really working on integrating more. We need more of these um, lessons implemented into the school system so that students not only can benefit in the, you know, in the immersion, but also throughout, throughout the school district. And so when I say about our ceremonies, I mean, we have sacred ceremonies and a lot of students, because they may not have had the opportunity, like myself, growing up on the reservation and having um, grandpas and grandmas, aunts and uncles that helped raise me into the traditional culture way of Indigenous way of life. But a lot of urban students, Indigenous students here may not know those ceremonies. And so being able to provide that, you know, through the schools, in bringing in um, guest lectures like our elders. And, and so, I mean, it's great. It's great work. I'm so proud that South Dakota has started this work, but we can do better and we will do better. There's a, um, the, our elders here in the community and they say this all the time and I see it too, but there's a movement happening here and I see it throughout the country. There's a younger generation coming up and we are very open and very driven. And so I have so much hope for the future, especially when it comes to education equity for students of color. Um, I'm just so honored to be a part of this movement. I keep saying that, but I can feel it. And my spirit feels good. It feels washed day. And the elders, they are happy. They see this movement as well. Um, I do want to say, I know we talked, you kind of mentioned this earlier about, and I do want to mention it too, about residential boarding schools. Um, if you have noticed, there's a lot of children that are being found throughout Canada and throughout the United States. And we know even here in Rapid City, there's a boarding school that sits here. And we are, we are in the middle of that work as well, along with the task force and with the critical race theory coming at us as well. Um, it's been very unique, very unique time. It's been a trying time. But like I, I keep going back to, there is hope um, because finding those children, it is giving us healing. We know, we know, um, we already knew they were there. All, everyone knew. Um, we've heard the stories in the communities throughout, throughout the North America. And we knew they were there, but that's part of our healing. And I feel like we can start moving forward in a good way after, you know, it's hard right now, but we can continue to move forward in a good way, even with this task force work. It really aligns hand in hand. Um, I'm so excited because my son is actually going to be in the kindergarten classroom. And so he's going to be learning the language. He's going to be experiencing some of those experiences I had growing up in a, you know, graduating from a tribal school and be um, around my culture and language all the time. And so I know he's going to be okay. But I want to make sure that we continue this work to implement throughout the school district. 
not just in kindergarten. So that's why it's really important that those Echeti Shakoi essential understandings are um, there's buy-in from teachers. And it all goes, it all has to do with leadership. The principals there need to buy into it as well. And I'm sure it goes the same with all over the nation. Leadership. We we need more um, minorities and people of color in those leadership roles because we know what we need to do to make that work happen. And we're not going to cause barriers because we don't have that mindset, that Western mindset. And um, I'm just tired of working within these systems that where white is always right and it's not. And it's not. And we're not all the same people. And I'm tired of hearing that we're not, you know. Um, and that's a good thing because we do have our own unique unique ways of learning. And so, um, sorry for going off on a little bit, but I, no. I needed to get nah. that off my chest. Go off, go off. It's all <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought up for folks who maybe uh, haven't seen the headlines or the stories, uh, but just the examples of some of the, uh, I think, I guess, for lack of a better term, mass graves we have seen around, um, you know, these these boarding schools, um, you know, if ever there were sort of a just a, a single manifestation of what these schools meant in terms of the life and, you know, uh, connection to community um, mm -hmm. that they were severing, uh, you know, a, a mass grave maybe is is it. And to see some of that being uncovered literally now um, is is so powerful. Um, so I appreciate you 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 naming that and speaking to that. And um, also, I will say the uh, honestly, my my and our honest reaction when we came across the uh, Ocheti Shakoi essential understandings was like being completely flabbergasted. I, you know, I literally said to Manuel, I was like, could you imagine if California had a set of teaching and learning standards that was like Chicano teaching and learning standards or, you know, black teaching and learning standards? I'm like, this, yeah. this is like the most revolutionary thing I have seen in public education. And the, and the, and the fact that it is adopted by the, that they are adopted by the state and, um, you know, on on the webs on the state education you know department website for the world to see, and giving just this incredible uh, example of what can be possible to think differently about um, right. you know what what is important in teaching and learning. And I get what you said about like you know there's still a lot of work to do, and so I, I don't want to necessarily paint too rosy of a picture, but just want to say that for me on like a personal you know, spiritual level, it was important to, to encounter that document and to say, wow, this is, this is possible to think differently. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, I, I still, uh, need to finish reading them, you know, myself and really trying to internalize what they say. But I think there's in this national push for a more culturally responsive type of education, this is, um, a great example, at least of, of, of something that, something new that can be. Um, so, um, you know, really, really appreciate that work coming out of, of South Dakota. Um, you also mentioned, uh, Dr. Biggie, a moment ago, you know, some of the, this, you know, the buzzword and weaponization of critical race theory that we're seeing mm -hmm. all over the country right now. Um, I imagine you are grappling with, uh, you know, at least on some level as well. 
And I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about how you have experienced or, or your task force or other folks doing the, the work you're, you're leading in South Dakota are experiencing this, this backlash against um, telling an honest history of this nation's you know, uh, experience with oppression, colonialism, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, all of that. How is that manifesting um, in your in your context and so one thing i i have to preface this with is that and i'm sure you're well aware critical race theory is not a new concept i mean it's 40 years old um and for you know for it to be used in a political way and that's what it, it is it is political it's it's driven by the republican party and we see it right here in our state and how i i am impacted by it is that our governor is pushing it and saying, well, we cannot teach the, these, you know, these thoughts and ideologies about critical race in the university public systems. I work for South Dakota Board of Regents, and this is my life's work. And I'm trying to say that, no, that history did not happen. We have to go from 1776 when we became a country. Everything that happened before then it didn't happen. Or we, you know, how's that going to help our people? No. And the um, genocide did happen. You know, the slave, slavery did happen. You cannot erase those histories. You have to acknowledge them. Um, acknowledging them helps us heal as people of color so that we can move forward. Um, it's really challenging, even in the task force work. I mean, I, I went to a school board meeting. Was it last week? It was last week. And, you know, there was a gentleman there, an older gentleman, conservative, and it was open forum and, and he just went off on critical race theory, um, saying that we're teaching our kids to hate the flag. We're teaching our kids in the school district to be anti-American, um, to be ashamed to be American. And and I just, I just don't think they understand what critical race theory is if they're educated enough. They would know that basically is what it's saying is that racism is a social construct. There was purposeful policies and things that happened throughout history that marginalized certain groups of people while uplifting and privileging others, which was mainly mainstream society, white people. And so that's what it's saying. It's not telling our students to be anti-American, but let's learn our whole history. It's, it's I mean, I just get upset about it. Um, and so that's from that standpoint, it's in and out of work and how I deal with it is that really it comes down to, um, knowing who I am and where I come from. And I really, really call on my ancestors all the time. Um, I pull from their energies and their, you know, they, they lost their lives for me to be here. And so I, and we are resilient people because we are still here. Um, even though throughout history, you know, trying to kill indigenous people off. And so I pull from that whenever I go against those folks that are, are speaking while well, they're racist is what they are. Let's just say that, um, there's no nice way to put it. And I know that I, I just have to continue to do the work in my spirituality and in our indigenous way of life, that self-care, taking care of yourself. 
is really important, but also how you do this work is you don't do it alone. Um, there's a team of us and we all pull on each other and it takes all of us to do this work. And so when we know there's one of us that are out there taking the hit, like how I did at that school board meeting, then all of everyone was reaching out to me, you know, we'll be there at the next meeting. We'll be there to support you. Are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, those types of things, you need those types of people around you supporting you in this work. Um, or else advocacy fatigue can definitely happen because you're constantly educating, 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 and advocating. Um, and like I said, I was talking with my colleagues and my friends, this is a different movement for us, a different aim movement. And if you know what the American Indian movement was, we're more violent back then. But what we're doing now is we're becoming educated. We're becoming, you know, getting doctorate degrees, law degrees everything in that sense and we are fighting the fights now with our education being able to articulate our thoughts the same way that um the white man tried to take us out in the first place and there's no easy way to say it um and that's our that's the new american indian movement now dope i love that and i would love to hear more about your your own doctorate and your decision to pursue that doctorate and um, your aspirations for what what your role in educational leadership might mean for not just indigenous youth, but like youngsters in general as well. So can you talk to us about what your decision was like to, to pursue that doctorate and, and maybe a little bit about mm -hmm. also what you what your dissertation studied? So, you know, growing up, there wasn't a lot of people that went to college. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. And I knew I wanted to get an education, like I said. Um, I'll go back to this. I'll preface it with when I was a sophomore in high school, I was reading this book. And it was by an Ahunkawan woman during the residential boarding school days. And her name was Redbird Woman, also known as um, Gertrude Simmons. and she talked about how she had to, you know, she had to go to Carlisle Indian School and it was really challenging. And then she was a teacher there and she saw how they were, they were um, treating the children. And then what she discovered was that in order to fight the white man's, white man's way, we have to learn the white man's way. That's what she said. And that really stuck with me. Um, I said, okay, this is why I'm getting my education. So I got my bachelor's degree, you know, and there's certainly there were challenges being first gen. Um, I raised children <laughs> during that time and then getting my master's degree. And at that time, you know, working in education and seeing how the systems work, um, seeing how there's a it, there's this hierarchy that happens. And in our indigenous ways of being, we don't have a hierarchy. We're all we're all here. We're all on the same level. And so it was hard for me to understand that. And then when I finally grasped that, okay, they're the decision makers. They're the ones that make things happen. I have to get my education. I have to get this piece of paper so that I can make it to that level so that I can really make a systemic change happen. And in the impact that I know I can make happen, of course, with support. So that's why I pursued my doctorate. It was to get that piece of paper so I can be respected, especially because it's Western valued. 
Um, it's not valued too much, like in our, in our way, um, indigenous ways of being, but it's starting to be. Um, but it was so that we can, that I can climb that mountain, get on the top and be able to say, I'm here. I can make systemic change happen. I'm going to work as a vessel. That's what I look at myself as, as a leader. I'm not up there telling, you know, telling folks what to do or what have you, but it's, okay, I'm working collaboratively with people. How can we get this work done? Even as a president of PAC, and um, I work with several folks, but you have to be in those leadership roles to make true change happen. And they keep saying, you know, change takes time. It's going to take a while. Well, not if you have the right people in there. It doesn't have to take a while. And so I'm very driven to get there. Um, and so not only in K through 12, but higher education, these systems can have educational equitable opportunities for all, not just the select few. And I really feel like to make true change happen, you have to have those folks in there who have lived those experiences. You know, like me coming from the reservation, living in poverty, I was basically raised by my dad. Um, my mom had challenges, but, you know, she's present now in my life. and. I was basically the caretaker of my siblings, you know, and had several challenges growing up, but seeing those firsthand and living it and then being able to see, I have a different worldview and I really want to bring that. And I hope that I can do that one day as a university president, because I can see how I can work collaboratively in the South Dakota border regions. And there's so much work, work you can do. Um, working at that platform and leveraging that platform to make true change happen throughout the state. And so I just look forward to it. I know in my heart, um, I'm going to make it happen because if you speak it, it will come to be. And I have all the support with me. And so I, I look forward to the challenges. I know there's hard, challenging um, conversations that need to take place, but that's how you grow. That's how you grow as a person. And so I just look forward to it. Yeah, well, I know I'm not alone um, in this moment, uh, Dr. Big Eagle, in saying that uh, the words you shared with us here today, um, the, you know, the path you've walked, the example you're setting, leading this task force and, and really uh, helping to transform uh, what school can be for indigenous youth uh, there in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, is, is a beautiful thing uh, to learn about and uh, truly an inspiration. And um, hopefully we can see not only great things uh, growing of this work uh, in Rapid City, but, but spreading to other um, cities and towns and, and districts across, uh, across this country. So um, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was truly inspirational to, to hear about you and your story and the work um, that you are helping to do and um, really appreciate your, your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks, that is it for today's seminar. Thank you so much for being here with us. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time of the episode, Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Something positive, man, something positive. Jeff, what do we got today for Class Dismissed? 
Well, Manuel, today I guarantee you we have an absolute first, something that has never happened in the history of all the above, uh, perhaps in the history of the entire globe, uh, Manuel, but certainly in our little slice of the globe, what we're going to say today ain't never happened ever before or even close to it. That is our, our good news for today, Manuel, involves the, uh, the federal government's TEACH grant. Okay, now for folks who, uh, who may not be familiar with this program, the TEACH grant is a program that the United States Department of Education funds to help cover the costs, uh, college, um, either undergraduate or graduate programs for people who want to become teachers and then actually do become teachers and in particular work in areas that serve low-income students and families, okay? So uh, you can get a TEACH grant for up to $4,000 a year. There's a bunch of, you know, requirements for it and that sort of thing. You have to get good grades and stay in school and you have to work in certain types of communities. But if you do that, it's a grant. You get $4,000 a year for, you know, for free uh, to cover your education. If you don't do it, <laughs> then that grant becomes a loan that you then have to pay back and not only pay back, but pay back with interest, okay? And so the TEACH grant sounded great when it came into existence, but then in implementation was frankly a hot mess. And many, many people were either being denied those grants or were being forced to, uh, to repay them as loans, interest-bearing loans, because of like nitpicky paperwork issues. Or, you know, I submitted the paperwork five days late and now I owe, you know, $25,000 to the government and, you know, with interest and, and crippling, <laughs> right? People who are teachers, people who are teachers in communities where there's a high need, you know, teaching science and math in low-income areas, um, and frankly, crippling financially the people who we created this program for because the profession does not pay enough for them to be able to afford to get credentialed, okay? So this was a hot mess. And I have to say, man, well, the thing that is where we're giving props is because not only is the federal government now fixing this under the Biden administration and, uh, you know, with Miguel Cardona as our new secretary of education um, and giving relief to people who have been caught in those nitpicky bureaucratic traps from before. Um, but also, Manuel, we have to give credit where credit is due because the policy decision to do this happened under the tenure of one Betsy DeVos, okay? I thought so we, we just... would not speak that name again <laughs> on the show, Jeff. We had an agreement. I, you know, I just, I have to say, Manuel, credit where credit is due, kind of. Now, it's like, um, you know, if I, if I like light your house on fire and then I come and I put the fire out, like, do I really get props, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that, that one could argue that that's kind of what Betsy, duh, you know, did right. in this situation. But uh, it is a fact that she, in all of her wisdom, as our former U.S. Uh, Secretary of Education, made the decision to correct these problems with the, with the TEACH grant, which went into effect in July of 2021. And now there are going to be thousands upon thousands of educators across the country getting the relief they deserved and folks newly admitted to, to the program receiving these grants and hopefully helping to address um, a lot of the teacher shortages we have in our in our field. So good news. Thanks, Betsy, I guess. <laughs>
I am going to just edit that clip to say thanks, Betsy. <laughs> thanks, Betsy. Thanks, Betsy. Thanks, Betsy. That's it. And I'm throwing that all over social media. Okay. This man, <laughs> this man is a Betsy DeVos stan here. Uh, all right. Well, yes, well Jeff, yes. actually, more good news. Um, California, California. You know that socialist, Marxist state mm, over there on the... Yes. On the coast, pe pe um, People's recently, Republic of California, I think they call it. Yeah, it, it, yes, they have a lot of really weird, awful nicknames for California. Um, by they, I mean conservative folks. But in any case, recently adopted state budget includes school meals for every student in California school system. Free breakfast, free lunch, no questions asked, no income ver verification needed. No more stigma around like, oh, you get free lunch. Da, da, da. None of that. Free lunch. You want it, you get it. Might not taste that great, I hear. But in any case, California, shout out to you. You have removed the stigma of students getting free lunch and you removed the, the barriers for certain families to get that free lunch. Um, you know, the language barriers and all the other stuff that gets in the way of of just getting some freaking food to your kid, man. So shout out to the new California state budget for including free school meals, universal school meals for every K-12 student in the state of California, a public school student. So yeah, boom. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Class Dismissed. We hope you enjoyed the show. We hope you learned something new and we very much hope you consider giving us that thumbs up or that five-star review, little write-up, all that stuff will be dope. Check underneath this episode for links to our, our merch and links to the stories we discuss and all that great stuff. And of course, everything is there on our website, aotashow.com. We love y'all. We'll see you again in about a week. All right, peace.